Hello and welcome to the Learn English Football Podcast with me, your host, Tom, and Tim. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Tom? I'm very well, thanks, Tim. Uh, I'm sweating again because we are sitting in our spare, my spare room in August temperatures, but apart from the heat, I'm feeling great, especially when I look at the Premier League table. Not at the position of West Ham. We are in 19th place. But because there is a team below us and it's surprising. What team am I talking about? Uh, Manchester United. If I were Eric Tan Hag, I'd be sweating as well. Sweating on my job. What do I mean to be sweating on my job? Yes, it means you're nervous, you're anxious that you might lose your job. Yes, definitely. They do say if you finish above United, you've had a good season. So uh, <laughs> West Ham are currently having a good season. Yes, and uh, this is what we're going to talk about this episode. We're going to talk about the woes or the misfortune, the sadness that Manchester United fans are feeling right now. And we're going to explore some of the reasons why that is. So, Tim, where do we start? Where do we begin on this uh, troubling issue for, for fans of the Red Devils? I think the, the only place to start really is to look historically. Uh, United have fallen a long way, but they've come from the very top. So I think the start of this problem actually was uh, before the, the departure of Sir Alex Ferguson, the mythical Manchester United manager who left 10 years ago now. Um, he was essentially so good at his job that he was almost doing three jobs or even more for Manchester United. What were the three jobs? I assume obviously manager is, was his job title, but what else was he doing? Well, even the word manager kind of encompasses includes two jobs it's a coach and a kind of um, a, a kind of sporting director to a certain extent he was establishing sign uh, he was establishing tra transfer targets he was coaching the team he'd been negotiating contracts um, so really I think they had an old-fashioned sporting structure uh, so when Ferguson left um, there was a lack of knowledge and there was a lack of, um, of structure to, to really fulfil the, the roles that the absence of Ferguson uh, created. There was a kind of a knowledge vacuum. Mm -hmm. That is interesting because historically, yes, the, the English football manager did encompass, as you say, include many different jobs. Uh, he was in charge of everything related to the first team. So that also included signing players, uh, in a, of course, training, coaching the players the way they wanted to play. Of course, these days, those jobs are delegated. There'll be a, a first team coach who is in charge of what happens on the training field. And as you mentioned, a sporting director who's in charge of making new signings or, or selling players as well. Yeah. So when Ferguson left, they had uh, left in terms of making signings. They had David Gill. Uh, who was responsible for a long time. He was also there under United, uh, under Ferguson. But when Ferguson was there, he'd be more dealing with the finer details of contracts, uh, pushing through the, the, the final stages of, of, of the deals that Ferguson would essentially be making. But when Ferguson left, David Gill became the sporting director, the person who was there to... Uh, to establish uh, transfer targets, to, to make contact with opposition cl with clubs and, and, and agents, and essentially to make the deal happen. But, Tom, if I were to tell you that David Gill's background is, a, is as a banker, mm -hmm. would that fill you with confidence if you were looking for someone to plan the future of a football club? 
I would probably want him there on my right-hand side if I was signing a player. I would want him to check over the, the financial details, but I wouldn't want him in charge of uh, signing and recruiting the players. I think you need um, someone who's more like a scout. What is a scout, Tim? A scout's the person who goes out there looking for talent, looking for mm -hmm. people who've got specific qualities to, to fill the, the needs of, of the team. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that kind of brings us on to our next issue. So... The United team, you could say, overperformed under Ferguson in their last year. They won the league, but it wasn't the best side if you look at it. On paper, they probably, were, uh, they probably weren't the best side in the league. I think United fans would agree with that. They generally talk about the team of 1998-1999 that won the, the Champions League in the final minutes, and also the team around 2006-2007-2008. Tevez, Rooney. Vidic and yeah. Ferdinand in defence. Those are generally considered the, uh, the strongest United teams under Ferguson. So you have this team that needs redevelopment anyway. You've lost the knowledge in Alex Ferguson. You've got this man, David Gill, who isn't a footballing man, but they do have a lot of money. And suddenly, United start going for big-name players. And unfortunately, football isn't so simple. It's not just a question of, I've got a weakness in midfield, let's go and sign Paul Pogba, and we're going to fix that problem. Now, there are various roles in midfield. Not everyone plays the same role. A centre midfielder, you could have two centre midfielders on the pitch that are totally different players. Um, and so you can see some of the signings they've made since Ferguson left. I mean, we're talking about players like uh, Fred, uh, Maguire, Cavani, Ronaldo, Fellaini, Angel Di Maria, Memphis Depay, uh, Bastian Schweinsteiger. I mean, these are players who have come in with huge reputations. Pogba, Lukaku, Alexis Sanchez. I mean, the list can go on if you want. But we can dissect this list and look at these players and think these are really objectively terrible signings. And one player that I'm going to look at here is uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Uh, on paper, to the untrained, to the unknowledgeable eye, when he was signed, he was an up-and-coming right-back English playing for Crystal Palace. He's had a great season. But if you, if you scratch below the surface, and when I say that, I mean if you investigate a little deeper, really he does have a key weakness, and that's his, his ability on the ball, his passing ability. Now, maybe if you're Crystal Palace and you're finishing 16th, 17th in, in the table, your passing ability as a defender isn't your main priority. But if you're Manchester United, your right back is an outlet when I say an outlet, I mean a way to, to move the ball from defence into midfield, a way to move the ball up the pitch. And suddenly, Wan-Bissaka's weaknesses are so obvious. And if you're an opposition team, you know that you can pressure all the other, center, all the other defenders when they have the ball and just leave Wan-Bissaka without pressure. And you know that it's going to be Manchester United going to struggle to get out. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, just uh, to, I've heard Wan-Bissaka described... Uh, defensively, fairly solid, but in terms of passing and crossing ability, he couldn't deliver a pizza, let alone a good cross. Yeah, couldn't <laughs> deliver a pizza, I like that. It's almost as good as they couldn't finish a cup of tea for, for <laughs> yeah. strikers who mm. were struggling to find the goal. A bit like Romelu Lukaku when he was at Manchester mm. United. But let's not pick on Wan-Bissaka too much. Okay. He's still young. So let's let's continue with our, our dissection then. So let's move on to Bastian Schweinsteiger. Great player at um, 
at uh, Bayern Munich, of course, Champions League winner, multiple Bundesliga winner. World Cup winner. World Cup winner. Um, you could build a side around Schweinsteiger on his day, mm-hmm. but you bring him into Manchester United and you play him in a midfield with Morgan Schneiderlin and uh, Marouin Fellaini. And mm-hmm. I'm struggling to see, firstly, who's your ball winner? Uh, who's your creative player? I, I, okay, I can see uh, Schweinsteiger able to, to bring... To, to, to work with players like that, but I can't see Schweinsteiger delivering long balls onto the head of Fellaini or or being next to a, a metronomic Schneiderlin who's always going to bring him the ball. So they they just seem like signings that are... They're, they're desperation signings. They reek of desper, desperation. When I say reek, I mean smell strongly, but in a good way or a bad way? Oh, very bad. Reek yes. like a mouldy cheese. Yes, that French cheese really yes. reeks, Tom. Put it away. Schweinsteiger, I think they got him after he'd had a serious injury. So they were buying him on name, on reputation alone. And uh, it was clear that he was past his best. He could not run like he could before. Uh, so as you said, desperation again, and even some of the uh, this, we found a list of uh, signings uh, post Ferguson, categorised by the by the Manchester United legend Gary Neville, uh, and Gary Neville says that the only two successful signings are Ibrahimovic and Bruno Fernandes, mm-hmm. and I would even argue that Bruno Fernandes has been part of the problem over the last couple of seasons. I mean. You could kind of say that when Bruno Fernandes came to United, that was the that was the end of Paul Pogba's hopes, because Paul Pogba couldn't then have a free role in midfield. And also, you can see Eriksson, uh, Christian Eriksson, has just come to United and mm-hmm. and ha- is having to play out of position. And if again, if you scratch below the surface of Bruno Fernandes' statistics and you take away free kick goals, corner goals, uh, corner assists, and penalties. Really, he's not that high performing. And in, in the last season and a half since Ronaldo's come in, he's been a shadow of his, of his former self. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for you, Tim, because we've, we've both got this, this list from Gary Neville. And uh, I tend to agree that, that the only two successful signings have been Ibrahimovic and Bruno. I, I disagree with you about Bruno because I thought he entered the Premier League on fire. And without Ronaldo, we might see his star shine again. But my question for you, Tim, who has been the biggest flop? What's a flop? A flop is uh, someone disappointing, someone who you build up and have high expectations for and then doesn't uh, fulfil those expectations. I think there's a a discussion to be had between uh, one player and and that same player. And I think it goes down to Harry Maguire, Tom, (laughs) the world's most expensive centre-back, brought in from Leicester. Um, Tom, why do you think it's gone quite so wrong for Harry Maguire? Yeah, loss of confidence. Uh, Coming from, I believe he he came through Sheffield United youth, Hull, Leicester. He was uh, very powerful, strong, quick and very confident. But something has happened in the last, particularly last season at Manchester United. And... uh, he seems unsure of what... Uh, he's not able to trust his own football instincts. When you are a centre-back, you need to know what you are going to do with the ball before the ball even arrives at your feet. You don't have time on the ball. Uh, and Maguire seems to be unsure of what to do now when he's on the ball, and also how to defend as well when he doesn't have the ball. He seems to have lost some of that footballer's instinct. Yeah, I think I think 100% it's a lack of confidence affecting his footballing instincts. And I think defensively, 
that uh, shows itself he attacks balls when he shouldn't mm-hmm. attack them and at the same time he stands off balls when he should attack them it's this just kind of doubt eating away mm-hmm. at his everything he does but I think more than that um, at Hull at Sheffield United at Leicester he was considered a good passer of the ball now I think there's a difference between someone who passes the ball well and a ball playing defender I mm-hmm. think Maguire is that first one. You can you can give Maguire a 50-yard pass and he'll make that 50-yard pass. But where I think Maguire maybe isn't a natural is being the brains of of mm. the of the out ball. And I think that's where maybe people confused his passing ability with his thinking ability. I don't think Maguire in his career has ever been a player who is essentially the brains of of the defensive passing structures and I think he's asked to play that role at Manchester United and I think that's where he's struggling ma- most um, so I have a bigger flop than you I think Go on. I'm not sure if our listeners will agree but I'm going to say someone who's close to your heart as a former Arsenal player who switched with Henrik Mkhitaryan for big money coming to Man United I'm of course talking about the Chilean international Alexis Sanchez. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's justifiable, your opinion. Mm-hmm. The only reason I'd say Maguire has been more of a flop is because Alexis Sanchez, the reality was, was found quicker. And mm-hmm. so he played fewer games for Manchester United. He left. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it was seen as a lack of integration between the club and player mm-hmm. more than a lack of quality. Yes, I would agree with that. For me, the the, the most striking thing about Alexis Sanchez's failure at Manchester United was that he'd gone from playing very successful successfully and being a fan's favorite at an inferior team and then he went to arguably a, a wealthier more successful team in recent years sorry Tim but I think that you could say the last decade has not been kind for Arsenal Football Club with the exception of the FA Cups I'll continue biting my tongue Uh Uh, but it seemed like he was joining a bigger club yet his form totally failed him he looked like a very very different player so I agree with you that the fault seems to lie with something within the club that was unable to bring out the best of the player so Let's move on and let's have a quick look at uh, the owners. Okay, so the owners uh, are the Glazer family, an American family. Um, and they take out more money from the club than any other owner in world football. Um, that's in dividends from shares, in financial services. So they've outsourced the financial services at Manchester United to their own company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they take out over £25 million a year in financial services, lawyers, fees, things like that. Um, and uh, essentially, Manchester United, one of the criticisms of Manchester United from people maybe outside of the Premier League is that they spend a lot of money. And that is true, they do spend a lot of money, but they also spend less money than they generate. They have generated more money than they've spent on transfers every season for the last 10 seasons. So mm-hmm. I think this criticism of the owners on a financial level is valid but I think more than that it's that it's their lack of knowledge going back to a knowledge thing unable to create a sporting structure around the club um, I spoke to a Manchester United fan now who says yes but at least we've started the regeneration cycle and I said have you started that cycle have you reached rock bottom yet mm-hmm. or are you waiting for that cycle to start tom look i'm going to run you through managers who've managed manchester united's post ferguson and i'm going to give you 
a quick summary of why I think those managers were wrong for the club. And essentially we can summarise them quite like this. They're either very tactical managers who don't understand English football or don't understand the club, or they're very British managers who don't understand superstar players and superstar tactics. So I'm going to say David Moyes, um, his problem, he'd never worked with big name players, he'd never worked at the top of the game, so a lot of the players questioned his tactics, even though he did understand the, the heart of the club and the heart of, of English football. I'd agree with that. Tactically, Moyes has always set up fairly defensively. He likes uh, you know, typically three centre-backs, five-man midfield with two of the wing-backs in midfield dropping in to make a five-man defence when necessary. But I also think we have to be a little bit sympathetic with Moyes because I think he inherited a poisoned chalice. What do I mean by a poisoned chalice? An impossible job. Yes, exactly. Literally, it's describing, uh, I guess, a, a cup, as a, an expensive uh, cup that a king might drink from. But this one was an impossible job because he was replacing... Alec Ferguson immediately after he finished. And you could also argue that being sacked before the end of the season, having been given a five-year contract, um, I mean, David Moyes would probably have done something in the last 10 years that mm -hmm. these managers hadn't. Anyway, next manager, Louis van Gaal. Exactly the opposite problem. Experience working with top-level players, experience with high-level management, but a lack of understanding of the club. His style of football, his defensive, his structural football was never going to win over the Manchester United fans. Also, he isn't known as a, as a person who's going to build a side. He's known as someone who's going to come in, put the final pieces in place in a, in a club uh, and try and win something and then leave. I'd agree with that. He wasn't uh, there to build the club. He wasn't a long-term project manager. He seemed to be... It, from the signings that he made, he seemed to be very much about getting some kind of short-term success, uh, you know, putting a, a trophy in the cabinet if he could. Uh, but I think there was a sense during his reign that Man United were still on a downhill slope. They were still going down from the, the previous heights and, and successes they had achieved. Yeah, the transition was bigger than he was able to, to, or had experience or history really implementing. And then so you've got Jose Mourinho, so of course comes to the comes to the club as a Champions League, or multiple Champions League winner, Premier League winner. I mean, nobody needs to be told how successful he's been. But in Britain, he's known as for a very pragmatic style of football. Mm -hmm. uh, Manchester United fans demand attacking football. He's also had um, a few incidents where he's had kind of like meltdowns on television what's He's, a meltdown when you have like a psychological um mm -hmm. i don't know how would you describe it yeah, you you lose your temper you get very angry all of a sudden you, you lose control of your emotions yeah criticizing the media criticizing big players in the club and essentially deflecting criticism away from himself onto other people and that was the problem at, at manchester united it started happening and suddenly it was him against the players, uh, just like it had been the second time at Chelsea, at Real Madrid as well. Um, so, but looking at Mourinho, he, did he win a Europa League? He won the Europa he League. He came second in the league mm. and he won a Carling Cup. Uh, a League Cup. A League title, Cup, yes. Um, and he also, upon leaving, he said that finishing second in the league was his greatest sporting achievement. And that's coming from a manager that uh, has taken Porto to a Champions League win. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, 
This was seen as typical Mourinho sour grapes. What do I mean by sour grapes? Yes, some bitterness, some bad... Mourinho had some bad feelings about uh, how he was treated by the club. Yeah, so... uh, But nowadays, people are looking at those comments and thinking, actually, maybe Mourinho was trying to transmit... uh, exactly how, how, how deep the problems run at yes. Manchester United. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of things I'd like to, 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 to address. When a manager starts criticising his players publicly, you know the writing is on the wall. What's that idiom? The writing is on the wall. Uh, yeah, the situation's pretty obvious. Uh, yeah. Maybe it hasn't been officially announced, but you can see what's going to happen. You can see that in this case there was clear... Uh, Normally uh, for negative things. Yeah, for negative things that, that Mourinho's time was going to come to an end because uh, there was obviously... Uh, there wasn't unity in the dressing room. When you're criticising your players publicly, there is clearly some, uh, some real problems at the club. Uh, Mourinho also made a comment about Manchester United about momentum that it, it which I agree with that there are often clubs going through natural cycles and and as an Arsenal fan I think you'd understand this because Arsenal when Wenger ab- arrived were a, a league winning club they they had of course the the undefeated season uh, and then they had a, a period of, of 10 12 years of downward momentum uh, and Mourinho pointed out the same thing had been going on at Man United uh, since the time of Ferguson. And these things sometimes are just the ebb and flow of, of football, that a team can be on the ascendancy or on the descent going down. I think Manchester United fans would argue that his £9 million a year were mm-hmm. were intended to be able to stop that ebb and flow. And when we say ebb and flow, we say the natural movement of water, especially in the sea, um, so that's right. Actually, I realise I've used a cliche that I've heard a lot of sports commentators use. They talk about the ebb and flow of a game as well to talk about the rhythm in a ninety-minute football game of football. Who has possession of the ball? Who's attacking? And then it might change. The other team might have a period where they are in control. That's the ebb and flow of a football match. And also, final criticism, Mourinho. Of course, Manchester United, the club that has won the league with kids. Um, refused really to, to promote youngsters in the team um, and I think that really hurts Manchester United fans so moving on of course so you have a kind of reaction to Louis van Gaal and Mourinho and this is again the lack of sporting direction the, you've got people like David Gill listening to fans a bit too much as opposed to being proactive and having a bit of vision that he can implement um, being able to block out noise you've got Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who on a tactical level I would say he's got zero uh, credibility for the for the role. I mean, let's face it, his only top-level job was at Cardiff. I think it was a temporary job and he got one of the worst winning records in their history. Um, he was un- inexperienced with top-level players, but he's a person who the fans could relate to. He's a person who was always going to be a hero because of his match-winning goal in 1999 Champions League final in the last minute. Um, so again, it's like the opposite problem. You feel like the perfect manager might have been a Mourinho mixed with an Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, obviously totally impossible. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer introduced that kind of pride again. They did look like they were going up again. That he They attracted some new players, Bruno Fernandes, Harry Maguire. He, and in some ways, you've got to give some credit to, to, um, to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because he persuaded the club 
to invest in the positions where, under Van Gaal and Mourinho, they had been unable to per- persuade the club to invest in those positions. And mm. I suppose in some ways that's why he was there for kind of two and a half seasons. But at the end of the day, his tactical ineptitude was the problem. When I say ineptitude, I mean lack of knowledge, lack of ability, was what cost him his job. Um, And essentially, it's always going to be hard for a Manchester United manager when in the era of Liverpool and City, your two biggest rivals playing the best football in the world and and beating you 4-0, finishing the league 20 points in front of you. It is difficult. Um, And so they moved on to uh, Ralph Rangnick. Before we go to Rangnick, I've got a couple of comments on Solskjaer. First of all, I felt that uh, he got a lucky break to cement his place in that position. Paris Saint-Germain. That Paris Saint-Germain victory, I think Rashford scored a very late goal uh, in that game. And that really moved, uh, yeah, knocked out Paris Saint-Germain in, in the Champions League knockout stages. And that got him the contract. Uh, I felt he lacked the clout of uh, some of the other managers. What do I mean by the clout? The hitting, hard-hitting impact. Yes, and and I'm referring actually to the clout in the transfer market. You are right that they did invest in players. like They got Bruno Fernandes during his era. uh, But he wasn't able to attract the other big names because he wasn't an Ancelotti or a Mourinho, a manager who had... Uh, a record of winning things. A household name. A household name, that's right. So, And then the third point, yes, I agree totally that he was tactically naive. I think he wanted to come back and play Fergie football. Uh, the trouble with that is that Fergie developed that project, that style of play, and, and infiltrated that system into the training ground over a period of a decade. And it was outdated by the time he finished. That's right, yes. So Solskjaer didn't have the options. When they came up against difficult clubs, maybe they were struggling at half-time, they needed Solskjaer to have some tactical nous. By nous, I mean some insight, ability to change the nature of the game. And I don't think Solskjaer had the experience to, to implement the changes they needed. And then we move on to uh, Ralph Rangnick, who, to me epitomises, and when I say that I mean symbolises absolutely everything which is wrong about the sporting direction of Manchester United. So they bring in a manager from the footballing wilderness, and when I say wilderness I mean uh, outside of civilised world, uh, from Locomotive Moscow. So not a, a top football club. As a manager who's got most credibility in his time as a sporting director more than a manager, uh, they bring him in as a caretaker manager, so that's a temporary position, with the potential to be extended, but if he's not extended, he becomes a consultant. Mm -hmm. So if I'm Cristiano Ronaldo sitting in that dressing room and Ralph Rangnick comes in and tells me what to do, tells me to play a tactic that I don't like, I'm thinking, I'm looking at my contract and I'm thinking my contract finishes after your contract. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do exactly what I want. You have no reason to be respected. You, you've come from nowhere. You are nobody. And your contract says you're going soon. So was, there, was it ever going to be anything but another poisoned chalice for Ralph Rangnick, Tom? It sounded like uh, he was appointed as a caretaker manager. So when the players know that, uh, they're already thinking about who's next. I don't, I don't need to impress this guy. I'm more interested in doing enough 
to uh, you know impress the next to be at the club when the next manager comes in. So towards the end of the Ralnick Rangnick spell, towards the end of the season, it became obvious that he wasn't going to be extended, and his his interviews became more and more. Um, insightful and when I say that they gave us a kind of a view from the inside what he was thinking he became very critical of the club very critical of the transfer policy I think the the phrase that we can all remember is that Manchester United need open heart surgery mm. and again it was a bit like the Mourinho comments it was seen at the time as kind of like oh he's he's angry he's disappointed but looking back you can think actually this is a man who is a sporting director is very experienced and maybe that was his honest assessment. Um, and it seems strange that even he, that he didn't he didn't even want to do the consultancy role after he left. In six months, he had gone from someone who believed he could turn around Manchester United to someone who never wanted to be associated with the club again. So that to me smells smells bad. I so, want to use the word toxic, really. When toxic, he talks about yeah. open heart surgery. It sounds like he's talking about a toxic environment within the club. And that goes beyond the first team. It goes beyond the youth team. It goes beyond the, the coaching structure generally. It probably he's talking about a lot of people who are in positions at that club. They've got jobs there. They've had jobs for decades. They're feeling very, very comfortable. And as a result, they've become complacent. They're not interested in doing what they need to do to move the club forward. I think Ranick was probably talking about a general staffing problem at Man United Club and needing big, big changes in the people who work there. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, moving on to the final manager, the current manager, Eric Tan Hag, big reputation, Champions League semi final with Ajax, punching above their way to Ajax, absolutely no doubt about it. Um, Worrying first signs. Of course, they lost at Brighton 2-1. They lost away um, to uh, Brentford 4-0. Uh, 4-0 down in the first half. Brentford could have scored 8. Um, and to be honest, the early signs from uh, Tan Hag's spell at the club are seriously worrying. Let's not forget, he was announced as the next Manchester United manager in April. I think everybody who watches Manchester United regularly knows they need a centre midfielder or two. They need to solve the centre-back problem and they need a striker. Uh, so since April, he hasn't signed a centre midfielder. It's not obvious that they've even scouted a centre midfielder who actually wants to come to the club. They've spent their whole summer ch chasing Frankie de Jong at Barcelona. He doesn't want to go to Manchester United. Why are they chasing him? Um, they've now focused on Casemiro, a totally different style of player to Frankie de Jong, a much more defensive player. So it seems, again, they're lacking a strategy. Who are you going to play Casemiro with? Casemiro at Real Madrid plays with Tony Cruz, who stays very close to him. And Casemiro gets the ball and then the dynamic work comes from Tony Cruz. I can't imagine Scott McTominay doing this dynamic work. Um, they've signed uh, Martinez from Ajax. Five foot nine for our European listeners. That's one meter seventy five centimeters. I think it's the shortest centre back in the history of the Premier League. He got absolutely dominated by Ben Mee last week. Mm -hmm. um, ben Mee was actually falling over and was still taller than Martinez at the point of contact. Is this Ben Mee, the ex Burnley captain? Ex Burnley, who's now at Brentford. I see. Um, there was a, a corner into the box. It was a typical Premier League battle for the ball under the goalposts. Uh, ben Mee was falling backwards and he was still taller than Martinez, mm -hmm. uh, who was jumping or trying to jump. So it, it seems that that to me 
Seems like Tan Hag, he hasn't established uh, a target for midfield. He's brought in a player that he knows, a defence, but it's not the right player. He he prays a high-pressing style of football, and he hasn't sold Ronaldo. He hasn't released Ronaldo. It's been quite obvious for months that Ronaldo doesn't want to be there again. It's a toxic relationship between Ronaldo and the fans. So... Uh, and the club, sorry. So it seems to me that Tan Hag has started very badly, and I, I've made. I, I, there's talk of him walking away from the club. Wow! Ripping up his own contract, and let's not forget they've got Liverpool this weekend. Mm-hmm. Liverpool. If Brentford scored four against them, Liverpool could destroy them. Mm-hmm. So Tom, I'm going to give Eric Tan Hag. Let's let's make a little bet here. I'm going to say he's going to be sacked by Christmas. He's he's going to be out of the job mm-hmm. by Christmas. When do you reckon his uh, time is up? Uh, I think that the club will stand by Ten Hag. Uh, I, I expect Man United will start to turn things around soon. Probably not by that Liverpool game. I expect Liverpool to, to dominate them, both in terms of the goals they score and, and in possession of the ball. Uh, but I've seen that Ten Hag, at least he has the passion. I've seen him getting very, very angry, which uh, also actually it could mean that he's close to walking away, as you said. But I think the fans want to see that passion. They want to see a manager who really, really cares about what the players, the team are doing. And it gets angry when his players let him down. Interestingly, Manchester United ran 13.7 kilometres less than uh, Brentford during the Brentford match. And Tan Hag, this was on the Saturday, Tan Hag got all the Manchester United players in, substitutes included, on the Sunday, very on normally at what's considered mm-hmm. a, what's a, a day off, and made them all run 13.7 kilometres, which to professionals seems a very old-fashioned style of punishment, but it speaks a language that fans understand. And that kind of moves us back onto our final point. I, I have a comment on that. I think that... Uh... You're right. It will appeal to the fans. It will show that Ten Hag cares about the club. But I think from the the physio point of view, it's actually a very dangerous thing to bring players back out to run uh, after they have exerted themselves, albeit 13.7 kilometres less than their opponents. I I, I read also a comment from the United uh, sporting staff that said any player who had any doubts over injuries was uh, excluded and um, it was considered. It was seen as kind of a warm down run. Apparently, mm. on, on a physical level, there was no particular danger. But mm. kind of talking about solutions, we don't just want to criticise. For me, what we need, what Manchester United needs, is a manager to come in who's able to communicate up and to communicate down, to be able to speak a language that fans understand, but to also to be able to communicate the necessities of the team to the to the owners, to the to the money guys. And also to be able to communicate properly tactical information to the players. Now, that is a very difficult job because Manchester United is a very specific club. So to speak the same language as the fans and the players and these kind of foreign owners is tricky. So it'll be a difficult job for any any man, whoever gets, or, or woman, whoever gets the job. Uh, personally, I think it's not going to be Tan Hag. Mm-hmm. Um, you maybe think a little bit differently. Uh, can you think of anything that really is needed to be done to fix the problem? Well, I, I can see what they are doing right now. You may see Man United are all over the gossip pages of sports newspapers with rumours. So, Tim, let me ask you, do you think that any of these uh, potential transfer signings <coughs> could work for Manchester United. Now, first of all, we've had 
Casemiro. That looks like that deal is nearly done. Could that be a successful signing? Well, if the question is, is Casemiro better than Fred? Yes, a million times. If the question is, is Casemiro going to answer all of their central midfield problems? No, because he hasn't got the dynamism in his passing range mm-hmm. to connect with the play- like the likes of Bruno Fernandes and Christian Eriksen. But he's a big upgrade. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good a good signing if it happens. If I was Casemiro, I might be questioning why I would be going there. Mm-hmm. No Champions League football, mm-hmm. um, playing in a club uh, that mm-hmm. is nowhere near the level of Real Madrid. Although he can team up with his uh, centre-back who, who came last season, the French centre-back. Yeah, Varane, of course. Uh, not Varane. Who was the... the, the, the... Rafa Varane. Varane. Sorry, Varane. Yes, yes, you're right. Varane, yes. Okay, another one. Yannick Carrasco. Yannick Carrasco. Um... <sighs> Strange player. He's had his spell in China. When someone's had a spell in China, you always have to question their commitment to, to the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been in and out of the Atletico side. But to me, he's a very technical player. He's a good player. Mm-hmm. But is he the, the star signing which is going to, to appease to make the United fans happy? And I don't think he is. I agree, yes. I, I don't think he plays consistently enough. I've got one for you. Mm-hmm. Arnautovic. Oh, oh! Linked, well. linked last week. Had a great uh-huh. season at Bologna. Scored twelve or thirteen goals in in twenty five appearances at Bologna. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, he was a target until they released the name to see how the fans would respond to the name. The fans got really disappointed with the name. Were vocally disappointed, and they mm-hmm. dropped him as a target. Do you think he's the kind of player that could have had an impact? Uh, three years ago, absolutely. But right now, it would be the, the best you could get would be a kind of Edson Cavani impact of a striker who's already at the, the end of the tail end of their career. So, long term, no. Here's another one like that Amir Begovic, uh, ex Bournemouth goalkeeper. Uh, I think the goalkeeper situation is, is desperate because essentially they've got a great shot stopper in David De Gea who is unable to play football with his feet which is what the modern game requires. But what I don't understand is the amount of goalkeepers, the opportunities that other goalkeepers have had, and they've still stuck with with the hair, and they've just Mm -hmm. sold um, uh, Henderson to to Nottingham Forest. Mm -hmm. uh, Henderson is an England-capped player. He's had a great season. Was it at Sheffield United a few seasons Mm -hmm. ago? He's desperate for first-team football. Okay, he's not... Um, an Edison with the ball at his feet but he's a good passer he's, he's, mm-hmm. a, he's, a, he's, a, he's not a bad player so Begovic I think is, it reeks of desperation mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. Um, and it reeks again of poor planning because you've got a young goalkeeper who you've sold mm-hmm. and so you, and now you're trying to bring in an ageing goalkeeper who wasn't very good when he was at his best mm-hmm. Here's th- I'm going to give you three and say which one would be the best fit for Man United Anthony from Ajax Pulisic from Chelsea Joao Felix from Atletico Madrid. I'm going to say Anthony. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I think Joao Felix is one of these players that doesn't have a a fixed position. He wants to play in between the lines. And I think mm-hmm. they've got too many players in between the lines. Who was the last one, sorry? Pulisic. Pulisic. I think good Premier League experience, but you've always got to you've always got to worry when your major rival is trying to give you a player. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, although I personally do like Pulisic, I like his, his dribbling skills. I think he arrives in the box, uh, well timed arrivals in the box. Yes, I'd agree with you. Anthony would be the the star signing, but I I'd be very surprised if Ajax will let him go. There was talk that they would have let him go at the beginning of the summer for a high transfer fee, but. 
Um, they no longer want to let him go because there's only two weeks left. They don't think that they'd be able to successfully reinvest the 80 million euros that Manchester United are reportedly going to offer. So, Tom, Manchester United, they are dissected. It's a terrible situation. Uh, I hope our listeners understand a little bit more about the problems. It's, it's not a simple problem. It's, it's a, a problem with various layers mm. and uh, could take one year, could take 10 years to sort out. Mm. Um, is this, I mean, let's face it, clubs don't have a, a God-given right to be at the top. Liverpool went 30 years without winning the Premier League. We've had Nottingham Forest, who've got Champions League or European Cup victories, who've just come back to the Premier League after a 20-year absence. Mm -hmm. This is the natural ebb and flow of British football. It's one of the things we celebrate. It's one of the things we love. And it's one of the major differences between the British, the English League and some of the other more established European, continental Europe, Europe uh, leagues. So, Tom, is that all we've got time for? I think so, yes. I think we've said enough about Manchester United. Uh, uh, let's see if any of our listeners are Manchester United fans. Come and uh, join the conversation in our Facebook group. Uh, we've got a page, Learn English Football Podcast. Uh, and, uh, yes, that's it from me. Thank you very much to our listeners. Cheers, Tom. Cheers, Tim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.